Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hello and welcome to Film Chat. This week, Danny and I are tasked with defending the Republic from a separatist movement led by former Jedi Master Count Dooku. Danny follows a series of clues to the ocean planet Kamino, where some spindly aliens are cloning a bounty hunter. Mm. And I spend a romantic sojourn with Senator Amidala <laughs> on her homeworld, disturbed great. only by an overabundance of coarse sand. Oh, that's the worst. Hang on, how... Wait a second, no, sorry. I'm being told that idea has been abandoned because it was already used in Star Wars Episode Aww. 2, Attack of the Clones. What? Instead, we're just going to sit around and talk about films. I'm Sam Foster, and this is my grumbly, bearded mentor, Danny. Hello. On this week's episode of Film Chat, we tackle the Pedro Almodovar-produced Argentinian anthology film Wild Tales, and Sam wrestles with the Amanda Knox-inspired The Face of an Angel. Where does that film sit in its director's filmography? Is it at the winter top or is it at the winter bottom? <laughs> it's directed by Michael Winterbottom. Very Just nice. To clarify. Plus, we rank all 142 of Robert Duvall's credited performances in order of quality and perform a high speed medley of every TLC track ever recorded, both of which Katie assures me will make the final cut. Don't go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> <laughs> So, news. The most recent news I have is that uh, Disney are going to do a live-action version of Winnie the Pooh. This is like a big trend we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Why think of new ideas? We can just take cartoons and, and do live-action versions to real people. Yeah. So, is Brilliant. it going to be a Paddington-style thing? Well, uh, yeah, I guess so. It uh, has little information about it. Alex Ross Perry who is an indie director best known for The Colour Wheel, which came out a few years ago. I don't know what that is. <laughs> which was highly acclaimed. And his most recent indie comedy drama, Listen Up, Philip, 
um, which apparently is also very good. So he's a very interesting choice. It's like, who is this guy no one's heard of? And why are they giving him loads of money to make Get me an obscure food? director who made a well-received film that didn't sell very much. Exactly. It's just the, it's the recipe behind Paddington. Well, you mentioned Paddington. I think if this Paddington hadn't come out and been so beloved, everyone would be like, what, what the fuck? But like, now that Paddington's come out, it's like, talking bear movies can work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So why not Winnie the Pooh? Though, I don't know how you'd make a feature film of it. They're all like short stories. But so is Paddington. But I don't know. I don't know. I'm already looking forward to the Eeyore spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The darker sequel. The darker sequel. Centred on Eeyore. I'm trying to think because Paddington was a good feature film because it took the sort of overall theme of those short stories and made that into a plot. Yeah. What's so what's all? the theme of Winnie yeah, the Pooh? I'm trying to think. Um, being a... Isn't it? Isn't the idea of Winnie the Pooh that it's casts a child in the role of the sort of wise uh, mentor. Christopher Robin. Yeah. He's like Obi-Wan. <laughs> well, because Christopher Robin is, like, he's a child and he acts like a child, but yeah. all the other characters in the Hundred Acre Wood are, like, even more childlike than him, so they turn to him for advice. It's true. Who's going to avoid one of the poo? Ben Whishaw? Um Well, they'll probably start with Ben Whishaw and then fire him and replace him with Colin Firth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Uh, there's more characters the cast who's gonna play eeyore they should get Ian mckellen for winnie the pooh i think who is like cinema's best missing i need some help <laughs> removing the lid from the jar of honey <laughs> christopher i'm scared of huffer lumps and weasels <laughs> that's a uh, ticker is it disturbed by huffer lumps <laughs> is it huffer lumps perturbed by weasels <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to think. It's all in my like childhood memory bank. The details of the Winnie the Pooh mythology are escaping me a little bit. I've got stuck inside. My paw is stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too fat to get into my home. <laughs> yeah, nothing going to be good. Yeah, I think you that's, should. Play... That's the direction they should go. <laughs> you should play Tigger. I've I've invented a wonderful new game. It's called Pooh Sticks. <laughs> It's called Poo Sticks. It's called Poo Sticks. <laughs> this is brilliant. They should get us to do the voices. Yeah. We're much cheaper. Just our sort of um, incredible array of impressions. Celebrity impressions brought to bear in the mouths of those uh, animal characters. Yes. Well, I'm pretty excited for that. And if you can think of some good suggestions for who should voice the characters in Winnie the Pooh, write in and let us know. Write in and let us know. Last week, shortly after we finished recording, they released a teaser trailer for Spectre. Spectre. The new Bond film. Did you watch it? I watched it. Did you, uh, you know, were you pretty excited? Were you very uh, eager? Were you like, wow, what's going what's gonna to happen in, this, in a teaser? I'm a bit sort of conflicted about my opinions about Bond because it's such a big part of my childhood. I've got like, activates a little sort of excited kid part of my brain. But the sort of recent uh, tendency towards sort of dour moodiness sort of dampened my enthusiasm for the franchise. This one looks like the most dour and moodiest so far, doesn't I it? I swear it's like a new trope where Bond has to go talk to an old man. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. It's like every movie now, he has to find an old man who's a bit depressed. A bit weird. An old weird man <laughs> says something a bit old and weird. You're a kite flapping in a hurricane, Mr. Bond. Wow. So, ideal, right? Have all the items to be in a hurricane. Yeah, it, I think like what you wouldn't want to be is like you're a straw roof in a hurricane, you know, something that would be really bad. Yeah, one thing I did like about the trailer was the way Christopher Waltz managed to uh, sneer the word James. <laughs> sort of says like James, 
he yeah. sort of like somehow elongated it like a fraction to make it a bit sinister. He's a bit of a genius at that sort of stuff, though. He's just, you know, linguist dexterity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Linguistic de- dexterity. That's the, how yes. he would say it. The only person more linguistically dexterous <laughs> is you, of course. Of course, me. Yeah. Um, but he's a good, he'll be probably be a good baddie. Yeah, he's just good and stuff, isn't he? Yeah. Just good and stuff, Christoph. Uh, I don't know. We look kind of nicely shot and everything. He probably wears very nice well, yeah, suits in it. Well, it's Hoyt von Hoytsmuir. I can't pronounce his surname, but they got it into Stellar and uh, let the right one in. It's the DOP. Yeah. Is that going to be a sort of unexplained black hole in the film? Yeah, I hope so. I think that's... so good at shooting them. Uh, especially with Skyfall, I think they kind of replaced depth with just sort of moody lighting. Mm. And it seemed a bit more of that. Look at old Siri. Look at this. He's just like a silhouette. His face is in shadows. What a beautifully shot frame. This must be a great film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That sort of thing. Look yeah. how deep this movie is. You can barely see what the fuck's going on. Yeah. It must be important. So do you think it's going to turn out that Christoph Waltz is Daniel Craig's dad? I hope so. What must his mum look like? <laughs> <laughs> and and what, what age would she be? What's the age of seen those two actors? Um, I guess, yeah, Christoph Waltz must be in his late 50s. Yeah, he must have, like, conceived Bond when he was about 10. <laughs> okay, Google. How old is Daniel Craig? Oh, fuck, I really thought it was going to read out the answer. Did we, that we covered this when we were talking about the. You're right, he's 46. 46. Okay, Google. How old is Christoph Voltz? Uh, he is 58. So, right. um, so he was 12. He was 12. <laughs> he was probably sexually abused by an older woman. Yes. She got. <laughs> By his teacher. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be like this evil 75-year-old. <laughs> oh, I know what it'll be. Judy Dench is Bond's mom. Oh, my God. She raped Christoph Waltz <laughs> when he was a little Austrian boy. He was there on the mountain with his little lederhosens, yeah. tending his goats, and she just came along. Yodeling. And she, and she raped him. She raped him. She raped him. They gave birth to Bond. That's going to be the horrifying, and you know, that's going to be the awful true story. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Christoph Waltz's dad was like, (laughs) send this boy to Scotland. Send Send this child of abuse. (laughs) Send him to an old man. Let him be raised by an old Scottish man. Well, now, now we know. Now we've clarified what's going on. I'm very excited. Yeah. Well, I'll be I'll be entertained certainly if that's the story. Okay, what's the final piece of news? The final piece of news is that apparently 20th Century Fox is making a deal with Hasbro to make a live-action movie based on the toy brand Play-Doh. Right. They saw the Lego movie was a huge hit, critically and commercially. Kids like building things from Lego. What else do they like building things from? Yeah. Hasbro, they've just got so many. They've made loads of shit. They could all be movies. Mm-hmm. Play-Doh is obviously um, ripe with ideas yeah. or a plot. I wonder if that one will you know, uh, actually happen. I mean, there was some Monopoly film that was mooted a while back, right, with oh, Ridley yeah. Scott, um, who's going to make that, but it didn't I mean, really happen. How would that work? How would that possibly work? <laughs> I, think, well, I think it's obvious that it would be a sort of <laughs> little <laughs> posh man in a car versus a hat or something. Like his enemy is a hat and yeah. a ship. Andy Circus is playing the hat. Yeah, Andy Circus is playing the hat, Andy Circus is playing the ship. <laughs> and they're both fighting over who gets to build a hotel in Mayfair. Brilliant. Um Man yeah. But play Play Doh, what will that be like? What are the uh, details on that one? The only details is that apparently uh Bridesmaid Helmer, Paul Fag, who seems to be just very busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got his Ghostbusters he's got on. His Ghostbusters movie. He's um, just made Spy, that Melissa McCarthy movie. He's apparently in negotiations to direct the film, 
with a man called Jason McAuliffe writing the script. I haven't looked up who that guy is, so don't ask me about any of his credentials. I don't know. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that's all the deets. How do you so think far. they're going to make a, a narrative film out of uh, what is the moldable plasticine? <laughs> <laughs> like, so, because Lego, at least, there's some character to it, right? They have different worlds. They're little people. Yeah, you can sort of see how you know they move around and talk. Right? Play Doh is just kind of plasticine yeah. that you like stick to itself and you know, mold in different Precisely. ways. Precisely. And the sort of genius of the Lego movie is they took the sort of selling point of Lego that you can make anything. Yeah. And like made that into the plot. Yeah. They found like, a good theme. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas. What is it with Play-Doh? Play-Doh's already, like, shapeless mass. Is it going to be all about the weird smell your hands have <laughs> after you used it? <laughs> I literally just don't know where you would begin. <laughs> like, it's like some sort of, like, um, kind of off-the-wall interview question that you, they would ask you in Hollywood if you wanted to be a screenwriter. <laughs> hey, so, you got to make a film about Play-Doh. Got five minutes. You know, pitch it to me. Uh, and then someone's got to go away and think of a story. Okay, it's set in a bakery. Um, right. Okay. okay. Yeah. Setting is a bakery, <laughs> and this bakery makes gingerbread men. Okay. Right, and they're all just regimented, uh, all the same. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the baker's daughter, who he has a fractured relationship with, comes mm-hmm. in with some play doh. Uh, also, all the dough is alive. It's like Toy Story. Okay, the dough's alive. Okay. <laughs> she makes it like a weird, uh, you know, multicolored little person. It comes to life. It, it comes to life and teaches the other dough how to uh, have fun and play. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then one of the customers comes in. They mistake the uh, Play-Doh man for gingerbread. Yeah. They buy him and then they're poisoned. They're poisoned. They eat him and they're poisoned. Yeah. And they die. <laughs> and they die. <laughs> and then they're buried. Yeah. And then the little Play-Doh man's alive inside their gut. And yeah. And just bursts out. All the gingerbread men rescue him. Oh, yeah. That, there's a rescue mission. They yeah. have to dig into the grave, break through the coffin, yeah. break into the <laughs> decaying corpse, into the stomach excavate the uh way through blood and organs and tissue yeah all that kind of decaying matter fight off the worms yeah and uh and rescue the the play-doh man and then he returns home to to be with a little girl smash cut 20 years later (laughs) 20 years later oh yeah maybe it can be like a ted type thing (laughs) but with everything we just discussed as a a prologue (laughs) and it's like ted and then the plot is identical to Ted. Okay, that's, that's, that's sort of then. then it turns into Ted. Everything else that happens is the same as Ted. And roll credits. All right, brilliant. Okay, that's that sorted. Maybe it wasn't that hard, actually. We oh. thought it would be a bit hard, but it's pretty easy. Geniuses. Yeah. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ask-quenchingly poor? Out of Danny for the judgment we're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So, Wild Tales, it is an anthology film written and directed by Damien... Here we go. Schizophron? He has S and a Z next to it. I mean, what does that even mean? Yeah. Schizophron? I should ask Marianne. She'll know how to pronounce that. Which consists of six separate short films uh, which are connected thematically by themes of corruption, violence, and bureaucracy. And revenge. And revenge. Yeah. (laughs) The sexiest of all the sins. Yes. And... um, yeah, it's I, it's kind of like the such short stories. It seems sort of foolish to um, describe all the individual plots because you can sort of sum them up. You ruin the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I think it's more fun to go in if you don't know what the story is going to be. So we've both seen this. 
I really liked it, Sam. I liked it too. I thought it was really good. It's been a while since we've watched a good movie, it feels. Yeah, it's, it was... Uh, yeah, it felt like a kind of breath of fresh air, actually. Especially because I saw The Face of an Angel yesterday, which I'll we'll talk about more in a bit, but had I seen it the other way around, I would have been... I think I would have liked Wild Tales even more. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, I don't know. It's like a kind of... Wild Tales was like a kind of... Um, shot of everything exciting about a film like you know compressed into 20 minutes you know it was like the set piece from six different movies sure um and uh, just in a row and i found it very exciting yeah what was uh, so good about it i thought was like it's um maybe by virtue of the fact that they're short stories there's real like confidence to the way it's executed you sort of understand who yeah, all the characters absolutely, are yeah. what the situation is in about a minute and then the, every short film subverts your ex- expectations like consistently and in really inventive ways yeah and I think that, that kind of economy of, of storytelling was really impressive yeah and like the shit hits the fan and some more shit hits the already shit laden fan and yeah. then uh, before you know it you can't even see the fan anymore so much <laughs> shit it's a beautiful metaphor I thought of when watching the film. Yeah. Um, um, the thing it reminded me of was, well, Pedro Almodovar is a producer, and I'm not sure if this is just my limited understanding of like European cinema, but it felt uh, a bit like his movies in that there was a sort of heightened reality mm. where weird shit just happens, but not in a way that sort of derails the movie. It all sort of somehow totally fits. Yeah. And maybe it's like the prologue film sort of sets up the tone of the film really well and then like after the prologue movie it's like oh well, like kind of anything can sort of happen i think what's so what's so great about that kind of heightened reality world is that it doesn't come at the expense of psychological realism so you still can understand what all the characters are doing it's not like sometimes when you watch a french movie and just, they just believe they just um sorry they will behave like you know automatons that the director has built you know because he wants sure. to like make some you know point about like love or memory or something and uh whereas in these movies really extreme things happen all the time but they all come from very understandable motivations yeah yeah i, I got i got the similar feeling as, as when i watched an almodovar movie that i really like we're like this is cinema you know i'm watching something that's properly cinematic yeah it's true it's like it couldn't be done in any other medium like the way they executed the stories they yeah. only work as movies they remind me like Kurt Vonnegut has this famous essay which is like tips of writing short stories and one of them is give your audience one character to identify with and then put that character through hell to show them what they're made of right and I really like the uh, like a sort of common theme was like a sort of kind of domestic bliss which quickly just goes to hell yeah yeah and uh, characters who just like suffer like horrible uh so an injustice after an injustice and you sort of see them be peeled away yeah yeah and it's just, it's just so engrossing it's just like I don't know it really invests you in the movie from the off yeah and it's also really impressive the way that the kind of danger with these short film anthology things is that you are not gonna you won't ever get settled into it you know because each story keeps ending and you, you know introducing a new one but there, it's also kind of pacey and it, there's no kind of weak... There's no one that's really weak. Like, there was no kind of 20-minute strategy. Like, this story is bullshit. You know, they were all, like, good quality. And Yeah, I think part of going. that is that um, all the movies, they're all different, but they're all trying to sort of be crowd-pleasers, and they're trying to, like, elicit, like, big moments. Oh, there's yeah, not, There's yeah. no, like, subtle meditation or grief or whatever. It's all just, uh, like, trying to pull the rug from under you or, like, have, like, a ridiculous thing happen or something really horrific or something really violent. They're all, like, broad strokes. Yeah. 
so that doesn't feel like totally mismatched or yeah you know i don't know it's very light it's very sort of pacey i thought I, I thought the, the cool thing about um the way it dealt with that theme so there's, there's a kind of theme of like uh revenge to all the stories and what i liked about it is how by sort of showing you different versions of these revenge stories in a row it kind of illuminates what stories about revenge are, are kind of really about which is people feeling like their sense of fairness has been disrupted you know yeah someone suffers like what they see as an injustice or their principles are like broken and it drives them to extremes and i it's uh, an interesting kind of exploration of um something which is very fundamental to human nature i think which is that uh feeling like you need to reassert you know, reassert yourself or correct an injustice yeah, yeah, drives completely. you to like do really irrational things and yeah it was neat the way that in each movie it sort of took you from uh, innocuous beginning to you know insane ending <laughs> uh, and each step of the way kind of made sense and it was also yeah. impressive the way it wasn't didn't feel like a formula you know like yeah, yeah I mean, they, were, they were similar but by the end you weren't like oh i've seen this five times and now i know how this story is going to play out you know it was always surprising so yeah i don't know it's just it's just a really good time you know yeah it's like uh it's a real it, good it really, time at the it really cinema delivers on its uh title and premise yeah without feeling like cheap or like lurid or just like a kind of schlocky thriller thing you know they're all about something and they're all sort of witty clever little stories i I agree wholeheartedly. I think, yeah, I recommend it to everyone. I think, like, if, if it was anyone, if I was ever talking to someone who was like, oh, European cinema is also, like, navel-gazing and, like, pretentious, you know, I'd be like, watch this, yeah. you know? I don't know how you can have more fun in the cinema in a movie that doesn't involve gangsters or, you know, armies. So... Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Go watch it. Go watch it. Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack. And telephone friends so you know where she's at. Right, that's enough. Now back to film chat. So, Sam, you saw... <laughs> The face of an angel. I did, yeah. Can you ask me about it in the most robotic way possible? Sam, you saw (laughs) the face of an angel. Was it good? Yeah, I use my smartphone so much now that anyone who doesn't sound like sort of Google, like text-to-speech voice um, just throws me. Uh, No, it wasn't very good, Danny. It was pretty bad. (laughs) What's it about? It is an, an adaptation of a book about the Amanda Knox Meredith Kircher story, um, which is quite well known, but for those who aren't aware, a few years ago um, there was a very lurid murder case that came out of Italy when a beautiful young British student was murdered in her flat and the chief suspects were a beautiful young American woman and her handsome boyfriend and it became this big, it was a big tabloid smash and the tabloids absolutely loved it because it was a kind of gruesome killing 
and the uh, particularly Amanda Knox, the woman who's accused of the murder. How could someone that attractive be so murdered? Yeah, she's like, yeah, she's like very beautiful, and yeah, they called her like Foxy Noxy and other such classy <laughs> things. <laughs> um, yeah, so so Michael Winterbottom, the director of many many films, he's like, super prolific, very very prolific. Um, he's about to release and like a, he just released this one. He's about to release another film, uh, documentary Russell Brand. Um, he also made a cock and bull story and 24 hour party people and the look of love and nine songs and various other things and the trip the, the his approach on the material him and his co-writer is that they have done a kind of meta adaptation about an adaptation kind of thing right so instead of directly adapting the book they have instead done a story about a filmmaker going to Siena to try to adapt the book and that guy is played by Daniel Bruhl. And the journalist who wrote the book is played by Kate Beckinsale. So it's this, there's this kind of distancing thing where instead of directly dealing with it, there's a lot of people talking about how to deal with it. Right. It's a bit like adaptation. And it's even a little bit like um, A Crock and Bull Story, which was sort of an adaptation of Tristram Shandy, but it was more like about people doing a television adaptation of Tristram Shandy. Thank you, Dick. And part of the problem is that that idea has kind of been done. Sure, yeah. And it sounds a bit... Yeah. And what... Right. Uh, and if you've seen Adaptation, well, that, that's a film about Charlie Kaufman, who was asked to adapt a book called The Orchid Thief and didn't know how, so he wrote a film about himself trying to adapt the book. But that's a very like funny, it's very clever, it's very layered and weird and inventive. And it makes a big point about the how he's like the snake in his own tail. It's like yeah. a sort of recurring thing about how it's so arrogant and sort of lazy to do that. Exactly, yeah. That's a real, it makes, like, it's it really discussed. Big points about it's really it. discussed in the movie. And, and you sort of, when you watch Adaptation, you're like, how much more can be done? You know, it's like... He did it. It feels like he really covered all the kind of artistic ground there. And also, I don't think a lot of people went to the Adaptation thinking to themselves, great, an adaptation of The Orchid Thief. And then they watched it and were like, why is there so much about Charlie Kaufman? Where's all the Orchid Thief stuff? Whereas with this movie, it's called The Face of an Angel, adapted from a book called Angel Face. It's not called, you know, me trying to adapt Angel Face. <laughs> yeah. So you're kind of expecting it to be about the actual case. And instead, it's about someone trying to make a film about the case. You know, all that material is very well known. So it's a bit weird to, you know, for it not yeah, to be completely. dealing with it. You know, is it does it feel like the fact that it's a real case is a bit of a misstep if it was like a fictional thing do you reckon the movie more successful i think i think the movie would not still not be that great but i think that it would have been better because there wouldn't be um that kind of baggage going yeah exactly there wouldn't be that kind of baggage yeah yeah so uh there's a bit like the movie is really guilty of this thing called lampshade hanging which is a something you can google uh, it's on like, <laughs> no something, I, something I read through um, tvtropes.org but it's basically when a film makes you aware of its own shortcomings rather than trying to like, rather than trying to solve its own problems it just tells you that it knows the problems are there that's you know great. what I mean yeah um, but as, it doesn't, if but it, as if that's clever enough yeah so but it doesn't really it. solve the problems so there's a scene in The Face of an Angel where Daniel Brühl the filmmaker is having dinner with um, one of his producers and he's going on about how he's trying to adapt this book and his the latest angle he's trying is um making it an adaptation like with a framework of Dante's 
Divine Comedy, and he goes on sure. about the Divine Comedy and how like the the three act structure will fit and how it's about a man trying to find his way or something. And then the, the producer is like, hang on, you've got this story about these like two young women in this crime and you want to make a film about a, like, a middle-aged man losing his way. You know, and she's like, doesn't like that idea. Sure. But that criticism is almost too accurate because it suddenly brings into focus like the problem with the film you're watching. Yeah. You're like, yeah. It's like, I'm good quite... Point. I'm, good point. Good <laughs> point. I am kind of interested in the... Um, well, the sort of two interesting things is like the mystery, the actual mystery of the case, like what happened that night. And the other interesting thing is the media exploitation, you know, and the, like the way they were all over it and uh, what they did with Amanda Knox's image and, and that kind of thing. Um, and every time the movie threatens, like, it's going to be about that. Instead, you have uh, Daniel Brühl wandering about Siena, like, looking really miserable. You know, he's just kind of obscuring the actual story by, like, you know, taking cocaine or like, getting drunk or being sure. angry. You know? So it's like the filmmaker has fallen go this like interesting area for something else, and what is yeah what is dismissed. It's is... like what well, you're imagining. What I was imagining is the writer sitting down. He's like, I've been asked to adapt uh, Angel Face. How do I do it? He sits there. He's like, I don't really know how. And then he's like, What's really interesting is my what I'm doing right now. You know, <laughs> this book is interesting, but even more interesting is me sitting here trying to write about the book. Yeah. You know, and it sounds it seems really self-involved and indulgent. It's like instead of doing his homework, he just wrote an essay about how he couldn't do his homework. Yeah, exactly. Or like sometimes you read you a news- for that. sometimes you read a newspaper column where someone's like, "I didn't know what to write for the column this week, so you know, here's an essay on the difficulty of writing stuff." You know, it's that kind of thing. Sure. Where you just feel like what you're watching is someone who couldn't solve their creative problems <laughs> when they were given the task in the first place, and even with that framework. Even if you accept that the story isn't going to be about what you feel like would be a more interesting story, but instead it's just going to be about, you know, this, like, artist and his midlife crisis, you know, which, by the way, we've all seen, like, a million times, sure. you know. It still isn't that good. There's really no kind of narrative momentum to it. You know, things sort of happen, but it's very, like, slow and doesn't really, like, go anywhere. And Daniel Brühl is quite good in it, but he is struggling to make his character anything except a sort of miserable, like navel-gazing loser. He doesn't demonstrate any kind of artistic talent at any point in the film. You're kind of told that he's a direct, you know, he's like a respected, renowned director or something, but he doesn't do anything that to, to show you that he is. You just kind of get the impression that he's a guy who just can't fucking make a film, you know, because he, he just can't work it out. He doesn't know how. How um, this is like a high-profile role for Cara Delevingne. Is she as good as her eyebrows are striking? <laughs> Uh, she's perfectly fine in it, but her character is quite bad. I read some review. It was I read the Little White Lies review of Face of an Angel, which was like Cara Delevingne's performance is this incredible, enrapturing, like mind-blowing <sighs> thing. It's mental. And it, but it's not really because her character is basically this sort of like untroubled, cheery teen who just kind of glides through life on a cloud and wow. is happy all the time. You know, it's like, there's not really... So complex. One of the things in the movie, there's all these kind of angelic women surrounding, like, Daniel Brühl. Everyone has the you know, face he thinks about He thinks about the Meredith Kircher character, who's called Elizabeth Price, and occasionally you see shots of her luminous, beatific, like, yeah. angelic-type face just kind of staring <laughs> to the camera. Like that, that happens quite a lot. It pops up in the corner of the screen. Yeah, and he's always Skyping his daughter, um, from whom he is estranged. Of course he is. And uh, obviously she's an, she's an angel as well to him. And the sort of third main angel in his life is um, Cara Delevingne's character, who you know, shifts him out of his slump a little bit when he's in Manic Siena. Manic Dream Girl. Yeah, kind of. I read a description of her as the, the sort of 
reverse my pacey dream girl but i don't think that's completely true you know she's not like crazy she's not like sure. you know wild but she is this kind of um i love everything i'm just having fun yay i'm in sienna hey i'm gonna help you out and she sort of seems to really really like him even though he doesn't do anything except look really miserable all the time chicks dig misery yeah also it looks like shit it looks like winterbottom filmed on his ipad like yeah. i don't know if it was like poorly projected or whatever but it really doesn't look good so it's going to the winter bottom of winter bottoms films yeah the bum hole of an angel is what they should have called the film my favorite film stars bridget bardo she's the queen but she wants to be in radio so she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end so happy easter everyone i hope you are having a wonderful easter weekend I was thinking the other day, why is it that Easter has not served as uh, that greater cinematic inspiration for filmmakers? There's tons of Christmas films. Yeah. But where are the Easter films? That's quite a major holiday as well, right? Sure. I mean, the only Easter films that really leach your mind are um, Hop, an animated film about a bunny with Russell Brand, and uh, Easter Parade. Yeah. Yeah, and that's pretty much it. Judy Garland, Fred Astaire. Yeah. I went on Wikipedia trying to find... Um, Easter themed movies and there's a, there's a few on here but I wouldn't say that many of them were particularly you know well known or or they might be set at Easter apparently um, More Rats is set at Easter and really? apparently and okay. so is Clarks or Clerks Clerks so yeah it just kind of like reaffirmed my impression that Easter had um, not made a big cinematic splash so anyway, I spent a very brief amount of time trying to think of... Uh, you found this gap in the market. Found this gap in the market, and I'm like, why aren't people trying to fill that okay, with their own Easter pitch ideas? Me. Pitch it at me. Okay, so I've got a couple of these. Um, maybe you can think of more. Sure. A Nightmare Before Maundy Thursday. <laughs> um, it's about a guy called Jeremy Pentecost, <laughs> and uh, he lives in a world where it's um, always Epiphany, and he travels to a different world where it's always Holy Week. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um... I will say I want to make a film called Eggs and lots of them <laughs> who doesn't it's about a boy who wishes that it was always Easter but then his dreams don't come true in the way he imagined when every animal on earth starts laying chocolate eggs <laughs> <laughs> think of the havoc that would ensue oh my god the ecosystem would be destroyed absolutely yeah and the Cadbury's would go out of business <laughs> and more importantly Cadbury's would go out of business <laughs> yeah it's all about the like financial impact on Cadbury's yeah um, my third idea is a movie called Deathadils yeah, like, you know, death of Dills. Got you. Um, in this film, spring comes to a small town in the Lake District, and with it, a deadly poison spraying from the stamens of the local daffodils. Wow, it's like sort of Day of the Triffids. Uh, right, but they can all see, and the, the daffodils aren't like alive or anything, they're just spraying a deadly poison. Brilliant. People have to avoid the poison while celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. <laughs> How about uh, Easter is Easter? It's about like a sort of uh, second generation Muslim family. That's a good idea. I like that one, um, yeah. The dad's a strict uh, Muslim, but the kids want to have chocolate and, you know, all the sort of tacky commercial stuff that comes with this Christian holiday. Yeah. And he wants them not to do that. Yeah, Cultural yeah, yeah. clashes. I think it's good. Easter is Easter. The Long Good Friday? Is that an Easter film? The Long Good Friday. <laughs> yeah, they already did. I think they already did like a um, like a like a comic relief sketch or something like that. Oh yeah, the wrong good. Friday. Oh, that was the wrong good Friday. Yeah, <laughs> but that's like set on Good Friday, isn't it? Well, if you can think of any Easter related films, write in and let us know. Some pictures for some new ones. Yeah, write in and let us know. If you're a screenwriter, listener, 
while you're listening to this podcast and as it's coming to a conclusion, why not imagine yourself as a Hollywood screenwriter yeah. and your blustering producer has just approached your desk and told you you must uh, write a pitch for an Easter-related film by tomorrow morning or you will be fired and your family will be murdered. So, <laughs> is, is this Clarkson, the producer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He makes remarks like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, what, what do you think? What do you think it should be like? And don't write a script about you failing to write a script about Easter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not looking for some kind of meta, <laughs> wanky bullshit. Just make, just make a proper fucking film about the thing that it should be about, please. So have a lovely Easter weekend as we welcome yeah. the return of our Lord yes. and Saviour. And in a special film chat message of love to all your families um, as you gather... ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com For this holiday. Bye! Bye.